Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young onset Parkinson's called Rebound. If you know someone with Parkinson's or you know nothing about Parkinson's, you will want to read Brian's story. Order your copy on Amazon or visit your favorite brick-and-mortar bookstore to grab one. Are you a Kindle reader? Audiobook listener? We've got those versions as well. Support Brian's foundation, which supports those afflicted with Parkinson's, and pick up your copy today. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. So I'm a little bit pumped up. We've just had Game 1, the NBA Finals, in the books. And I started off the last podcast by saying Giannis Antetokounmpo will not play in Game 1 of the NBA Finals between his Milwaukee Bucks and the Phoenix Suns, but that that was good news. I was going off the information I had at the time I recorded. Ah, whoops. I was wrong on the first part, obviously, that he wouldn't play. But I'm not so sure I was wrong on the premise of the second part which is that the Bucks might have been better served saving his return for Game 2. Physically, Giannis looked amazing. You'd never know he hyperextended his knee so badly a week ago that there were concerns he had torn a ligament. He himself said after Game 1 that he initially thought that he was out for the season, if not a year, I think. And it wasn't until he got the MRI that showed that there was no structural damage that he thought he was going to play again. Unlike Trey Young, who came back to play on a bad foot and clearly favored it and was affected by it, I did not notice a single thing Giannis did different because of his right knee, other than not look for his shot as much as he normally does. He took a total of 11 which is the fewest he's taken in a playoff game this season. I suspect that's not because he was protecting his knee, but that he recognized what the team did in his absence and didn't want to mess it up. That was my reason for saying that they might be better off 
if he didn't play in game one of the finals because of how the team had rolled, the chemistry they had, etc., in the games finishing off the series with the Atlanta Hawks. The result, which is what I feared would happen, is that Giannis didn't go full bore and the rest of the Bucks didn't play with the same aggression they had when he wasn't available. Consequently, the Suns walloped them in, the, in scoring from the free throw line. 25-9. to nine. That's the difference in the game right there. Now, the Suns and Bucks have been the worst teams in the entire postseason getting to the line. The Suns are dead last, and the Bucks are right behind them for fewest average free throw attempts per game in the playoffs. Their, their average makes, on the other hand, are separated by a fraction, both around 14. They were separated by an ocean in game one. The other advantage in not having Giannis play in game one, aside from preserving the mojo and desperation they had going without him, is that it would have given them a psychological edge going into game two, no matter what happened. If they had won, it's, we won, and now we have our MVP coming back. If it was close, it would have been, we kept it close, and now we have our MVP coming back. And if they had lost decisively, it would have been, so what? Now we have our MVP coming back. Instead, it's, we got our MVP back. He looked fine, had 20 points, 17 rebounds, and it still wasn't enough for us to avoid getting beat by double digits. Now, the one plus in Giannis playing in Game 1 is that the Bucks can now make Game 2 adjustments based on knowing what he's capable of giving them. And boy, do they have some adjustments to make in my mind. Now, my fear is that Coach Mike Budenholzer won't make these or any others because that's not how he operates. There were adjustments I would have made in the midst of game one, especially in the third quarter when Chris Paul had his way and gave Phoenix a bulge. Milwaukee squeezed but couldn't completely deflate. In my preview for the pod, uh, excuse me, in my preview pod for the series, I hoped that Drew Holiday would guard Chris Paul. I got my wish in the fourth quarter. And that was only after he torched P.J. Tucker and whatever big he could get switched on him, Brooke Lopez or Bobby Portis, through the first three quarters. The Suns only needed not to mess up over the last 12 minutes what they'd already forged. Chris Paul finished with 32 points, but he only needed five of them in the fourth quarter. Budenholzer elected to have... Tucker guards CP3 from the start of the game. And I can only describe it as an unmitigated disaster. Now, Chris Paul didn't take advantage of it right away. I'm not even sure he scored in the first quarter. But it was a curious decision from the start. Time and again, CP3 called on DeAndre Ayton for a screen and roll, which left him with a host of delicious options. If Brooks switched out on him, Brook Lopez that is, well... Now he could shoot a three, knowing Brooke wouldn't come out that far. Or he could drive and pull up for his patented mid-range. He had that option on Tucker as well, without help from Aiton, and utilized it. I don't know, when he got bored 
torturing Lopez or Portis. Because that was another hidden key to the Suns winning game one. Balanced scoring and usage. They had six players in double figures. The Bucks had four. They had eight players with a usage rate of 14% or better. The Bucks had six. That kind of concentration works if your big guns are producing in big gun ways. But none of them did. Giannis and Chris Middleton took the lion's share of the plays and the shots. And they did not produce enough to reward the Bucks for giving them that much luxury. And, and neither of them was uber-aggressive. They were too busy taking turns or accommodating each other. Look, there can be a logic in not putting the defender you really want on a guy from the start of the game. It avoids him getting into foul trouble and doesn't allow the offensive player to get a feel for how to attack that defender or allow the coach the first half to come up with some sets to shake his guy loose in the second. I get all that. But P.J. Tucker was not working at all. Either CP3 scored on him or took the switch and lobbed the ball to Ayton, who had no problem catching and scoring over the 6'5 Tucker. I have nothing against P.J. I've always admired his toughness. Any guy who gets drafted plays a grand total of 83 minutes before he's waived as a rookie by the Raptors, does an international tour playing in Israel, Germany, Greece, the Ukraine, and then fights his way back into the NBA, has my utmost respect. But here's the reality. He's 36 years old. The only offensive threat he poses is as a corner three-point shooter. That's where he's taken 85% of his 51 three-point attempts in the postseason, at least going into game one. And he'd only made 28% of them. That is not good. There's no easier long-range shot than an open corner three, and his threes have been open. For comparison, the Suns' Cam Johnson is shooting 56% from the corners. Shooting 50% probably is baseline for corner threes, open corner threes. Part of Budenholzer's dilemma is that he doesn't really have a deep bench. And I don't know what impact P.J. Tucker can have coming off it. That's why you would keep him in the starting lineup, essentially hoping to milk minutes and not wear out Bobby Portis, Pat Connaughton, or have to play... Brooke Lopez and Giannis, too many minutes. Uh, generally, you want your subs to come in and dominate or affect a particular part of the game. Provide a scoring punch, like campaign, or some toughness and rebounding, like Dario Saric, or straight-up D, like Tory Craig. In Game 1, PJ didn't give them anything of significance, even as a starter. Three rebounds... In 33 minutes, seven points on six shots, two assists, all adding up to a minus 14 and plus minus, a reflection that he wasn't really stopping anybody either, and that's supposed to be his bread and butter. If that's your heart and soul, as Budenholzer has described him, you need a seance and a transplant. There are some series a role player just isn't built for. Ty Lu was fearless in sitting guys down and moving them around for the Clippers. And it's why they nearly still wound up in the finals, 
despite being without Kawhi Leonard, Serge Ibaka, and Avica Zubac by the end. Those are all major pieces, and he navigated around their absence, moving guys in and out of the starting lineup and tweaking his rotation. And it's not easy. These are egos and personalities and guys that have had their routine and have or can make the case, hey, I helped you get this far. Don't pull the rug on me now. But that's why you get paid the bucks, sometimes the big bucks is that you have to make the tough decisions. You have to do what's right by the team and not necessarily by the individual. That's what Budenholzer needs to do. This series calls for some bold moves now rather than later. So here are four that I'd like to see from the start of Game 2. First, replace Tucker in the starting lineup with Bobby Portis and move Tucker to the back of the rotation. His 33 minutes in Game 1 need to go to Lopez, who only played 23 but still managed to score 17 points and grab 6 rebounds. Or divide Tucker's minutes evenly between Lopez and Portis, who was reduced to a meager 14 minutes but still nearly had the same production as Tucker. Whatever happens, more of the other bigs, less of Tucker. I want a rotation in that 4-5 spot of Lopez, Portis, and Giannis. And then we'll throw in Tucker when need be. But he's got to be on those Bryn Forbes, Jeff Teague minutes at this point, at this stage, in this series. Second move. Use Holiday or Giannis on Chris Paul from the start and make someone else beat you. Holiday was on Devin Booker most of Game 1 and showed why he deserved to be all-defense first team. Yeah, Booker had 27 points, but 10 of those came from the line on some extremely generous calls, and Holiday was not the one fouling him on most of those free throws. Booker was also 1-for-8 from three-point range, in large part because Holiday did a terrific job fighting over screens and staying attached to him. I'm good with Booker going off for 40 on... Chris Middleton or Pat Connaughton or even P.J. Tucker, to be honest, because Booker generally doesn't get anybody else involved when he has it going. Paul does it all. He gets his and he gets some for others. Limit Booker's hookups with Aiton, make him score from other than the free throw line, and you have a recipe for potential success. Third, Giannis doesn't touch the ball above the arc against a set defense. I swear, for every electric spinning drive for a layup, he loses the ball halfway down the lane or gets it stripped, which is an automatic breakaway layup going the other way, constituting a four-point swing. Four-point swings in the finals are deadly. You can survive them in the regular season. You might even survive them in the early rounds of the playoffs, depending on the matchups. But in the finals, it will get you killed. Below the free throw line, even if he gets stripped, it isn't going to result in a breakaway. And he's just demonstrated that he's got a few moves. He's, he's got a fall away jump shot that was fallen tonight. Like he can operate, he gets two feet in the paint, he's good. 
anything off the top of the key and he's putting the ball on the floor on a face-up drive, it's scary time. Finally, fourth adjustment. Reduce the ISOs for Chris Middleton. This, again, is not the series for that. The Suns have a host of able-bodied wing defenders that they can use against him, starting with Mikhail Bridges. Middleton had the highest usage rate of anyone on the team in Game 1, and 29 points and more turnovers than assists is not enough production to have nearly a third of the plays, especially when you're not really getting it done defensively either. And especially considering he needed to make several contested threes to get that 29 points, and he did not go to the free throw line once. 44 minutes played, team high usage rate, not one free throw. Holiday, meanwhile, was reduced to less than 20%, which is criminal after what he did when allowed to be the floor leader against the Hawks. And yet, against the Suns in Game 1, he still damn near had its poor man's triple-double. 10 points, 9 dimes, 7 rebounds. Will Coach Bud make any of these or any other changes? Well, we shall see in game two. But let's not hold our collective breath. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United WeCast Network. Please rate and review the show. You hear me say this all the time. Why are you guys not doing it? I really, I really, I need to know. I haven't had an additional rating or review in... Ah, maybe over a week. I hate to gripe, but I know some of you are not getting this done. It's the only thing I'm asking. Just click the stars. Write a little one sentence, two sentences. That's it. Okay, enough of that. This is normally where I tell you what will come up in the next podcast. We're uh, 48 hours away from game two, so... I'll be honest, I don't know exactly where we're going to go. We may go off the board. We may do another preview. We may look and see what happens in the subsequent 12, 16 hours uh, that uh, may come up and deserves our attention. My attention, your attention. We'll figure it out. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.